This week on Geek Explained, with his big screen debut in Venom, Let There Be Carnage, premiering this Friday, this episode is diving into the history of Marvel's second most famous symbiote. So join me as I Geek Explain Cletus Cassidy, aka Carnage. Welcome back to Geek Explained. I'm your host, Eric Kazana, and today's episode is the latest edition of our Geek Explained series, where I take a character, a concept, a team, a whatever from the long history of comic books, and I geek explain it to you. This week, we're geek explaining Cletus Cassidy, aka Carnage, the one of the most 90s characters that I have ever come across in my entire history of reading comics. And it's because this week we are getting the big screen debut of Carnage himself in the sequel to the Tom Hardy-led Venom movie, also known as Venom Let There Be Carnage. Uh, The big screen debut of this character will be played by uh, Woody Harrelson, which I'm cautiously interested in. Um, Venom was not a good movie. (laughs) I'm sorry if you liked it, Um, but it was entertaining. It's one of those things that's like, you know, it's not good, but it's fun to watch. And I'm actually very interested to see what they do with this film. So I figured now is as good a time as any to dive into the history of Marvel's I would say one of Marvel's most famous serial killers in the comic books. So we're going to be diving into his history, talking about some of his abilities. He's got a lot. For as new of a character as he is, he's not even 30 years old at this point. Um, A lot has happened in the history of Cletus Cassidy when it comes to comic books. So we're going to be diving into that, do some recommended reading as well, and just getting into what makes Carnage such an endearing character. We also have, of course, this week's Comics Countdown, where I talk to you about all the comics you should be picking up this week. And returning to the podcast after an extended vacation, we have the Weekly Review. That's right, the Weekly Review is back and not a moment too soon because we're talking about season three of doom patrol but before we get into all of that let's check in with this week's news Alright guys and dolls, let's talk some news. We have our four categories, film, TV, comics, and miscellaneous. No comics or miscellaneous news this week, so let's go ahead and dive into the one piece of film news, and you know which one it is. If you've been uh, paying attention to any kind of geek Uh, geek culture news for the past week you will know what we're talking about here the cast of the super mario brothers animated film has been announced and boy is it a doozy 
Um, let's just go ahead and rattle this off here. Um, we've got Chris Pratt as Mario. We've got Charlie Day as Luigi. We've got Anya Taylor-Joy as Princess Peach. Jack Black as Bowser. Seth Rogen as Donkey Kong. Keegan-Michael Key as Toad. Fred Armisen as Cranky Kong. Kevin Michael Richardson as Kamek. Uh, Sebastian Maniscalco as Spike. And uh, that's pretty much what we've got. It has also been noted that the voice of Mario for the past three decades almost, uh, Charles Martinet, will not be doing the voice of Mario and will be having a special cameo appearance, apparently. What, what are they doing? Honestly, what is... If you noticed something for the majority of the cast that was announced, you will notice that these are not voice actors. These are on-camera actors. This is what we in the biz call stunt casting, where you take characters and give them to actors who would not be seen anywhere near these characters if there wasn't a buck to be made. It's it's really... I, I don't want to be overly negative. Um... I'm just, this This sucks. This really sucks. And I'm not the only person who feels this way. I mean, who in their right mind thought, you know what, let's just scrap Charles Martinet, who's been doing the voice for decades, and let's do, let's have Chris Pratt be the voice of Mario. Like, who, whose idea was this? I would have rather had Bob Hoskins come back and be Mario rather than Chris Pratt. And nothing against Chris Pratt. I'm sure he's getting a great payday and he's going to infuse it with his Chris Pratt-isms. But, like, it's Mario, man. These games already have a killer cast. Why not just bring them forward for this movie that they're going to make lots of money from but is probably constructed as a cash grab? Like, I don't... Ah, it's irritating. It's irritating as a voice actor to see stuff like this, and the community was just on fire the day of this announcement. Um, It's just, it's irritating. It's irritating to see stuff like this. You know, I'm all for some of these castings. Charlie Day, I think, is going to be funny. Jack Black as Bowser is hilarious, and I, along with a lot of people, are hoping that he is the main character. But, like... There's no reason to demote Charles Martinet to be a to be cameo appearances when he has been the voice of Mario. It just it's there's no there's no excusing it. There's no defending it. And I'm sure that there will be people who come out and say, "Oh, you know, you don't you just don't get the Hollywood business." It doesn't matter. Like these are characters who have had dedicated voices for uh, years, some of them for decades, and you're tossing them to the side because you want big names, because you don't think Mario's going to sell any tickets. You just want to get names on here because you think names are going to sell tickets. So that's that's me on my soapbox. I'm just going to move on because I'm going to get heated. Uh, f- TV news got some more, got some exciting TV news actually. Uh, first off, we're stopping in the world of The Witcher, the Netflix Witcher franchise. Now uh, they released their second trailer for season two, which is coming up real quick. Looks great. Doesn't really give us too much more than the first trailer did, which I'm glad. Uh, I like that they're keeping some stuff close to their chest, and I'm hoping to get just as surprised by certain things as the first season did. Uh, it's already been renewed for season three, which if you had any any kind of doubt as to how much faith Netflix has in the Witcher franchise, let that doubt go because this is what we've got now. Um, 
Alongside that, they announced that a second animated film to pair with the uh, first one, as well as a spinoff series featuring, I think I saw Kids and Family. I don't know what that means. I'm sure that people who are more well-versed in the Witcher uh, lore will be able to tell me what that means, but... We're getting a whole lot of Witcher when it comes to Netflix, so I hope you like it. I know I did. Um, I enjoyed the first season. I'm interested. I haven't watched the animated series yet, but it's on the list of things I need to catch up on. So uh, I'm looking forward to this. We also got, speaking of Netflix, the, uh, oh man, the... Opening credits for Netflix's Cowboy Bebop live-action series, and... I might be in the minority here, but I really enjoyed it. Um, It looks ripped straight out of the original anime. Um, The costuming is on point. It does look a little low budget. It does look a little fan filmy, but I think there's something charming about that. I'm interested to see how it looks in practice, actually in the episodes. Uh, They teased a whole bunch of characters from all over the uh, lore of Cowboy Bebop. I was surprised they just showed off Vile immediately. I didn't think that they were going to go that far this early, but the one character that was uh, conspicuous in his in their absence was Ed. Um, I know that a lot of people are saying that they're saving Ed for season two, but don't do that. Just don't do that. Just bring Ed in. What's the harm? But overall, I really enjoyed it. Cannot wait to see this show. And then finally, we speaking of adaptations, we got the first look at HBO Max's Last of Us, showing off the backs of <laughs> Ellie and Joel. Um, I mean, it looks great. It looks just like The Last of Us. Didn't give us a whole lot to uh, to chew on, but it's in production currently. They are working their way through. I am very excited to see what they do with this, and fingers crossed, I hope it's good. So that is going to do it for this week's news. Again, a short bit of news. Half of it was a rant, and I apologize for that. But uh, speaking of adaptations, that is going to roll us right on into the main event, the main course, the on. Un- tray if you will which is in honor of the release of venom let there be carnage a full-on geek explained segment as i detail the history of cletus cassidy aka carnage oh shit oh, that is a red one All right, strap in, boys and girls, because this is about to get real weird real quickly. Uh, this is the latest edition of our Geek Explain series, and this week we are taking a look at Cletus Cassidy, aka Carnage. And diving into this character has been one of the most interesting experiences I've had doing research for this podcast. Because uh, Carnage was never a character that I was super invested in. Uh, He looked cool, he was Venom but red, and he was kind of a psychopath. So it's like, you kind of get what's going on with him. But oh my god. Just everything that goes into him gets weirder and weirder as his story progresses. And we're gonna get into it, but Cletus Cassidy is just... 
on another level when it comes to strange comic book characters. So, basic info out of the way first. Carnage, also known as Cletus Cassidy, was uh, created by David Michelini and Eric Larson and first appeared in Amazing Spider-Man number 344 way back in the far-flung past of March 1991. He is a 90s baby. Uh, his team affiliations include the Carnage family, the Astonishing Avengers, we'll get into it, the Symbiote Height Hive, and the Cult of Null. His powers and abilities include superhuman strength, speed, stamina, agility, reflexes, and durability, a regenerative healing factor, wall crawling, symbiote webbing, and I use quotations while saying that, camouflage constituent matter generation which means he can use his symbiote to generate tentacles and like create all kinds of different weird weapons as well as constituent matter manipulation so he can extend the size the shape the density of those uh, appendages that he can grow uh, his full body perception which is kind of like a spider sense but it's basically he is aware of everything on uh, a certain radius around him he has a symbiotic expansion and psychic control, meaning that he can infect other people with pieces of his symbiote and then take control of them. He can shapeshift, and after getting empowerment from not just Null, but the eldritch horror god C'thon, he has the ability of symbiote domination and otherworldly powers. Um, this is a lot, man. Like, right out the gate. There is a lot going on with Carnage. He has a lot of abilities that he has used frequently to torment the lives of Eddie Brock, Peter Parker, so on and so forth. However, he does have some weaknesses. Just like all other symbiotes, he is uh, weak to heat, sonics, and electricity. Electricity came a little bit later. Heat and sonics were kind of his big deal for a while. But with all of the basic info out of the way let's just dive into this history because it is bonkers to say the least so starting off Cletus Cassidy was born in Ravencroft Asylum aka known at the time as the Ravencroft Institute to a mother with paranoid schizophrenia who shortly died after childbirth yeah, so uh, following this, uh, Cletus was remanded in his custody to Nana, who was a physically abuse, ab abusive older woman who conflicting reports say was his grandma. Other people say it was just some old lady, uh, but she was incredibly physically abusive to him as a child, and this forced at a certain point, a very young Cletus to kill Nana by pushing her down a flight of stairs. <laughs> it's only going to get weirder from here, folks. So just be aware of this. Uh, following the death of Nana, Cletus was sent to live with foster parents, which, again, conflicting reports either say these were just straight-up foster parents. Other reports say that it was his biological dad and his wife uh but either way while under the care of this new foster family cletus tortured and killed uh the his foster mom's dog 
throwing her into a blind rage. Uh, she attacked Cletus, and uh, Cletus's foster dad uh, accidentally caused, while trying to protect him, the death of his foster mom, getting his foster dad sent to prison and eventually sentenced to execution. He hasn't even gotten the symbiote yet. He has. He doesn't even have the symbiote yet. Um, following this, Cletus, still a child, mind you, Cletus uh, ended up in Saint Esther's home for boys, basically like a like a like a a foster home, essentially like an orphanage for boys. Um, during his time here at Saint Esther's, he was heavily bullied uh, by all the other boys and uh, what experienced his first rejection he had a crush on a girl she denied him and he responded by pushing her in front of a bus eventually um as he grew into his preteen years he decided that everyone should die for bullying him so he set the entire home for boys on fire killing everyone both uh children and staff he, he killed everybody. Everybody died in the flames. Um, and Cletus was the only survivor. And then he went on the run for years. Uh, as he grew into an adult, his uh, serial killer urges, which had just been, you know, little incidents, though I think we could count that as a pattern at this point, uh, led him to a life of full-on serial killing. He became a notorious serial killer in the tri-state area. And was uh, basically the uh, perpetrator in dozens of murders that also involved cannibalism. So Cletus is great. Cletus is just just, just a great guy. Um, Cletus Cassidy was eventually arrested. And though he was sentenced to just 11 consecutive life sentences, uh, his body count is counted among, at this point, pre-symbiote, at least in the three dozen range. Um, he was sentenced to these 11 consecutive life terms at Rikers Island Penitentiary, where he met Edward Brock. Eddie Brock at this point had been defeated by Spider-Man, separated from the Venom symbiote, and turned in, and immediately these two did not hit it off. Um, Cletus really wanted Eddie to be his friend, and he told him, and he thought that he was crazy for thinking that he was Venom. Because Eddie was like, no, I used to be, I used to have the symbiote, I used to be Venom. And Cletus was like, no, you're a liar, you should just come with me and we should kill people. And Eddie did not take kindly to this and would regularly give Cletus beatings. And at a certain point, Cletus had enough of getting beat up by Eddie all the time. So he decided to murder Eddie by taking a shiv and, because they were cellmates, trying to shiv him in his sleep. However... Just as he was about to enact his plan, the Venom symbiote escaped and found Eddie. Rebonded to Eddie, and the newly reborn Venom caused a massive jailbreak at Rikers. Now, in the chaos, unbeknownst to both Eddie and the Venom symbiote itself, the symbiote, because comics, um, was pregnant. The 
symbiote species, or the Clintars, as they would later be known, are a fully functioning uh, species, and so they produce asexually. And so uh, the symbiote itself was pregnant, gave birth during the riot, during the jailbreak. No one knew what was going on, so no one paid attention to this. But Venom escaped, causing, you know, riots throughout the prison. And during the chaos, this small symbiote spawn that was birthed from the Venom symbiote found its way to Cletus Cassidy. Bonding with him through a cut on his hand that had formed during the riots, the symbiote bonded to Cassidy's blood. Not just bonded to his body like with Venom and Eddie, it blonded, blonded, it bonded to his blood, thereby attaching itself to his very DNA. And in this, because of his attachment to his blood, the symbiote turned red, and with that, Carnage was born. Shortly after rechristening himself as this new entity, uh, Cletus Cassidy kills one of the guards at the prison and escapes after Eddie, then deciding to go on a killing spree throughout New York, starting with a random person that he found in the phone book. He's a psychopath. Um, Carnage went on this just ridiculous and horrifying uh killing spree of multiple people, dozens upon hundreds of people throughout New York, and eventually ran up against Spider-Man, the protector of New York, which Carnage viciously beat until Spidey was forced to escape. Uh, Spidey ended up teaming up with Venom, and the two of them combined their forces to defeat Carnage. During this initial melee with all three spider folks and spider-adjacent folks, uh, they used their expertise of the symbiote's weaknesses to separate Cassidy from the Carnage symbiote and apparently destroyed the symbiote and remanded Cassidy into the custody of the authorities. Now... Instead of re-imprisoning him at Rikers, it was dubbed that Cassidy was out of his mind, which we didn't decide this already. And instead, Cassidy was sentenced to a very familiar place, that being the Ravencroft Institute, the place of his birth. He was going home. At Ravencroft, Cassidy was tested on by the doctors in an attempt to figure out what attracted the symbiote to Cassidy as a host. You know, they wanted to figure out what about Cassidy made him so special and made him such a viable host. So during these experiments, it was revealed that the Carnage symbiote hadn't been destroyed, at least not all of it. The majority of it having been separated from Cassidy, what that part was destroyed. However, because as we established, the Carnage symbiote bonded to Cassidy's blood, there were remnants within his blood lying dormant and waiting for the chance to escape. To release the uh, remnants of the Carnage symbiote in his bloodstream, Cassidy uses the handcuffs to slice open his wrists, allowing his blood to spray out and the symbiote to re-emerge, and he became Carnage once again. That's nice. Um, <laughs> Jesus. Uh, so Carnage, right? 
Reborn, ready to go, ready for round two, escapes Ravencroft, and also frees another inmate that he had grown close to during his time there, who called herself Shriek. Now, Shriek has sonic powers, and she's a whole deal in herself. And during their escape, they also happened to cross Doppelganger, who was a very, it was a very obscure character who was created during the Infinity War um, to basically be a dumber version of Spider-Man. And so Carnage adopts Doppelganger, he sees Shriek as his wife, and they're all a big ol' happy Carnage family. So they begin to cut a swath of destruction throughout New York once again, which attracts the attention of not just Spider-Man, but also Young Hero's cloak and dagger. In this initial fight, uh, the Carnage family absolutely bodies these heroes. In fact, they nearly kill Dagger and force Cloak to retreat with the remnants of Dagger's spirit. And they also happen upon this character named Demogoblin. He's not worth talking about, so we are going to continue on. Uh, the family, with now their two sons... Uh, <laughs> these are my two sons... Um, rampages through New York and inspires waves of rioting and looting. During this time, they also defeat and capture Venom, which they proceed to torture, uh, just absolutely ruining this man's day. Uh, thankfully, Spider-Man is able to rally heroes like Iron Fist and Captain America, as well as many others, to fight the Carnage family. This is, of course, the Maximum Carnage storyline. Uh, and during this big climactic battle, Carnage gets a little too, um, oh, what is the word? Possessive of Shriek. He doesn't like the fact that Shriek is making decisions for herself, and so he begins to beat her. Uh, the two quote-unquote sons see this happening. They jump to their quote-unquote mother's defense, and in this melee, Carnage kills Doppelganger and continues to beat on Shriek. Uh, eventually, the heroes do intervene. They're able to defeat uh, Carnage for the moment, who escapes. He has one last climactic battle with Venom, who does end up defeating him while also escaping from the heroes, because again, Venom is still technically a villain at this point, but either way, he uh, Carnage is... Defeated, uh, Shriek escapes with Demogoblin, Doppelganger's dead, and Cletus Cassidy is imprisoned once again, this time in a Supermax prison in the heart of Manhattan. While imprisoned, uh, Cletus Cassidy is attacked by Venom once again, who ends up absorbing the Carnage symbiote, consumes it, takes it back, and is like, I, I need this. This is mine now. So Venom uh, consumes the Carnage symbiote, leaving Cletus Cassidy with nothing. However, because Cassidy is, as we established, a psychopath, he believes that he is Carnage, that he doesn't need the symbiote, that he is just as powerful and can kill just as many people as he did with the symbiote. So he decides to escape the Supermax prison by himself, no symbiote needed, and resumes his killing spree, though not before covering himself in red paint and calling himself Carnage. Um, 
what what can I say to that? So he begins his killing spree anew. However, he is foiled by Spidey, who, like, knocks him out in one punch, essentially. Beats the shit out of him. Turns him back into the police. However, shortly after his re-re-imprisonment, Cassidy escapes once again, seemingly hearing a voice in his head, apparently believing it to be the Carnage symbiote speaking to him, and he escapes somehow into the negative zone. So, for those of you who aren't aware, the negative zone is essentially this other reality, this other dimension that is frequented by the Fantastic Four, other cosmic-y, cosmic-y characters in the Marvel Universe, and it's basically where all the bad stuff is. If there is a bad thing that has cosmic or otherworldly origins, it either came from or passed through the negative zone at one point in time. So Cassidy enters the negative zone and encounters this character called Blastar, who is trying to make his way to the 616 universe to take it over and to destroy anyone in his path. So they strike a deal where Blastar will help him re uh, regain a symbiote, and Cassidy will help him find his way to Earth and to do with it as he pleases. So during this sojourn into the negative zone, Cletus Cassidy finds a brand new symbiote who is not super jazzed about wanting, about being bonded to Cassidy, but Cassidy bonds with him anyway, forces the bond, becomes Carnage again. He then betrays Blastar, returns to Earth on his own in hopes to kill lots of people, because that's what Carnage is about, and then he tries to uh, go up against Spider-Man, because now he has a grudge. However, Spidey and Dusk eventually just... We're not talking about Dusk. I'm, I'm not getting into Dusk. Um, Carnage is defeated and once again arrested. However, after being arrested, what happens? Say it with me. Carnage escapes from prison and runs up against Venom. The two of them clash for a little bit before Carnage realizes, wait a second, you know how Venom's symbiote was pregnant without knowing? I think my symbiote's pregnant as well. And so... Carnage realizes that his symbiote is about to give birth. However, he feels something odd about this uh, about this symbiote that's about to be born. And so he tries to halt the birth, forcibly, basically beating the crap out of himself. Uh, Venom is able to take this momentary distraction to defeat Carnage and allow the birth to happen. This new uh, symbiote in hopes that he can train it as an ally. Uh, Carnage, in his desperation, bonds it to a nearby police officer named Patrick Mulligan. And Patrick Mulligan is deemed Toxin by Venom. Venom wants Toxin to be his, uh, essentially his right-hand man. And at this point, Venom is still in hardcore anti-hero mode. Dipping every so often into villain uh, activity whenever the story suits him. However, Toxin doesn't want to be a villain. Toxin turns on Venom because he wants to be a hero like his buddy Spider-Man. And so he escapes. Venom ends up teaming up with Carnage to try and destroy Toxin. 
and Toxin makes his way to Spider-Man and the Black Cat, who are palling around doing just friend things, and the three uh, heroes are able to defeat Venom and Carnage and imprison them both at the raft. Now, this is where it gets strange, and I know what you're thinking, Eric, it's already been strange. Well, believe me, you ain't seen nothing yet. So, while at the raft, Carnage gets a little restless and participates in a prison-wide breakout. The raft had never been broken out of. There have been no escapes at the raft until this day. Now, Carnage is one of the initiators to the breakout at the raft, and he is ready and raring to go to destroy not just the prison guards, but also the rest of New York. However... During the ensuing melee, he is intercepted by a brand new, well, not brand new, but returning hero known as the Sentry. The Sentry, basically sun-powered god-man, also half-evil darkness man. That's that's woefully underselling him. He's a great character. Um, quick shout-out to Owen Likes Comics. Uh, he recently did a video on the uh, Sentry miniseries. Go check that out if you're interested in the character. He's great. But back to Carnage. Carnage tries to fight Sentry, but Sentry is like, no, I'm not having any of this. So he flies up into orbit with Carnage and rips him in half. Just rips him in half. It's one of the most famous moments of Carnage's history. He's ripped in half, left to float in space, and Sentry goes on his merry way, ending up in the new Avengers. Cassidy was, uh, is at least the human side of him, was placed into a dormant state by the symbiote to try and keep him alive, and he floated in orbit for months. Months, just floating out, separated, in two, and we're talking about the top half. So the top half of Cassidy was put into a dormant state to keep him alive. And so they were just floating around for months until they crashed into a satellite owned by Michael Hall. No, not that one. And Michael Hall was the uh, CEO and founder of Hall Industries, which was a rival to Stark Industries, and one Tony Stark in particular. Hall separated... The remains of Cassidy's body from the symbiote dumped Cassidy at a hospital and began to experiment on the symbiote. Hall wanted to utilize the symbiote to create prosthetics and exosuits for his company to outdo Stark Industries. And after extensive testing, he was able to make it happen. He was able to separate pieces of the Carnage symbiote and turn them into prosthetics and exosuits for uh, military purposes. And so, to thank him, I guess, um, Hall created a prosthetic lower or a prosthetic lower body for Cletus, which was attached to him and kept him alive, and basically in a vegetative state in the hospital. However, the symbiote did not like being used as part of this new uh, business venture, so the symbiote escaped and took over one Dr. Tannis Neves. Now, why is Tannis Neves important? Because Tannis is the psychiatrist or psychologist of Shriek, Carnage's old flame. So the symbiote takes over Tannis, uh, takes her to Cletus's body, and 
due to uh, due to Tannis being a recipient of one of the prosthetics, it is revealed that the prosthetics each have a piece of the Carnage symbiote in them, which allows the Carnage symbiote to take control of them. So Carnage symbiote takes control of Tannis, reunites uh, Shriek with Cassidy, and then rebonds to Cassidy. Carnage reborn once again, and now he's got Shriek by his side. Carnage and Shriek go on another killing spree and eventually run up against Spider-Man and brand new to the uh to the we have a brand new challenger it's iron man so spidey and iron man go up against carnage and shriek tannis's prosthetic is revealed as a as a child of carnage not just a piece of it and it bonds with her and turns her into new symbiote scorn eventually scorn and shriek turn on carnage because shriek remembers the last time that she teamed up with carnage and they use uh, Shriek's sonic abilities to disable Carnage. However, he is able to escape. Following this, we're, we're just getting started. Following this, Cletus Cassidy goes on the run and eventually arrives in one Doverton, Colorado. A small city. I've been to this town in Colorado. I used to live in Colorado for a while. Carnage decides this small town looks like a great place to take over everything. So, Carnage uses his ability to detach pieces of his symbiote and takes over the entire population of the town. He dubs the town Carnage USA as a sovereign state unto itself, and when the Avengers arrive to try and defeat him, he whoops all of them alongside of his little carnage babies and they take over the avengers as well so not only does carnage have his own town carnage now has a team of avengers the only combatant who was able to escape from the initial carnage versus avengers battle is of course Spider-Man. Spidey goes into hiding and is able to do so thanks to the small but heavily, heavily inspired armed resistance of non-infected citizens of Doverton. They are underground. They don't know what to do here. However, what they do know is that help is on the way. After dispatching a government team called the Mercury Team, which are basically um, super soldier venom symbiote light characters they brought in the big guns they brought in your boy flash thompson aka agent venom to deal with the problem and this is where one of the most legendary rivalries in all of marvel comics begins agent venom versus carnage is one of my favorite duos one of my favorite uh arch rival rivalries it's it's great so agent venom heads in there alongside uh scorn remember her remember scorn uh the two of them hoping to liberate the town and take down carnage scorn uses a specially built sonic weapon to separate carnage from cletus cassidy however during the fight it also affects because venom is a symbiote uh, the Venom symbiote is removed from Flash as well, so the symbiotes continue to do battle, and what's great about this, and it's not great, but it's just, I think it's 
interesting is that when the symbiotes are both, you know, removed from their hosts, both Cletus and Flash Thompson are essentially without legs, which I that I just I think is a funny coincidence personally. But the symbiotes are not done. They continue to do battle through uh, some of the nearby wildlife, so they're each jumping to different animals to continue fighting each other. However, the Carnage symbiote is eventually captured and absconded with by Scorn, who has uh, ulterior motives, you might say. Cassidy, uh, after being clocked by Flash Thompson, is taken into custody by the Avengers and is imprisoned within Thunderbolt Mountain. And so, during his imprisonment in Thunderbolt Mountain, he is contacted by beings from the Microverse. Now, the Microverse is basically... Um, We've 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 touched on it in uh, MCU properties like Ant Man, Endgame. It's it's the quantum realm essentially, but the microverse is filled with baddies who want to get out. They want to get into the main uh, Marvel universe, and so they strike a deal with Cletus Cassidy. They want him to go into the microverse, and you know they really want to use him to help them take over the world so cletus uh battles against uh this new scarlet spider who is kane uh he escapes into the microverse where he proceeds to betray and kill the uh the beings that had recruited him however he's eventually captured by agent venom he had been reunited with the carnage symbiote at a certain point um and so he is battling against agent venom who had followed him into the microverse the two of them are however captured by the remaining forces of the microverse and they are subsequently experimented on their symbiotes being uh replicated and hybridized for the uh, microverse army creating an army of symbiotes that the microverse beings are getting ready to unleash upon the world however what they didn't count on is the one big thing that separates Carnage from other symbiotes, and that's the fact that you take pieces of him, he can now control anything that those pieces come into contact with. So Carnage takes control of the symbiote hybrid army, slaughters the remaining beings, uh, at least in this force of the microverse, and then takes his symbiote hybrid army into the main Marvel universe. However... Agent Venom is also able to escape, and he heads out and is able to get word to Scarlet Spider, who has this big climactic battle with Carnage before he is able to defeat him. Uh, following this, however, uh, because due to the end of the battle, Scarlet Spider, one of his powers is that he can deliver this like incredible like viral shock through the talons that he can uh, he can grow. Uh, due to this talon shock that he gives to defeat uh, Carnage, Cletus Cassidy, the human part of him, is left in a catatonic state. So he is completely just unusable which means that for the first time in their illustrious history the carnage symbiote is left in complete control so following this 
Uh, Carnage is freed from his imprisonment by the wizard because the wizard thinks that you know who would make a great new member of the Frightful Four? Carnage. Carnage um, is uh, not super jazzed about being part of this crew. Um, the symbiote is not really interested in being part of a team. So the wizard separates Cassidy from Carnage and then forcibly bonds the Carnage symbiote to Carl Malice. Carl Malice's body uh, eventually rejects the bond, more like Carnage rejects the bond. Uh, the symbiote looking for a nearby host actually bonds to the wizard. Cassidy's catatonic body is later recovered by the superior Spider-Man. We're doing, we're getting all the Spider-Mans. The Spider's man. Anyway, um, Superior Spider-Man believes that bringing Cassidy will uh, lure the Carnage symbiote away from the wizard and then he can destroy it. However, the symbiote is too strong. It does leave the wizard but ends up rebonding to Cassidy and is able to cause havoc once again. Uh, Superior Spider-Man alongside Claw and the Wizard are able to defeat Carnage and separate the uh, symbiote from Cletus Cassidy. However, it seems that this latest jaunt has jolted Cassidy back into consciousness. So he is back to normal. He is subsequently imprisoned in Kramer Penitentiary, where he is eventually stabbed by one of his fellow inmates in service of one Dr. Jenner, a psychologist working at the prison who really wants that symbiote for himself. He's like, I gotta have it, so I gotta kill this guy first. So... Uh, Cletus gets stabbed by a fellow inmate, is sent to the infirmary, where Dr. Jenner suffocates him with a pillow. He's dead. He, this is how Cletus Cassidy dies. Out of all the things that he has suffered through, this is how he is killed. Um, you deserve it, man, because you're a bad person. But this is not the end of Cletus' story. Uh, the symbiote escapes containment, and instead of bonding with Jenner as he had hoped, he rejects the Doctor, rebonds with Cassidy, reanimates his corpse, kills the entire staff as well as all the prisoners of the penitentiary, and escapes. This leads to one of the strangest encounters in his long, illustrious history when he runs up against the Merc with a mouth... Deadpool. Possibly the only person in the Marvel Universe more insane than he is. I'll have to do a poll at some point. But the two of them have a duel where it is concluded by Deadpool forcing Cassidy to question his existence and autonomy. Saying, essentially putting doubt in his mind that you're not really an agent of chaos because what if, you know, we're in a comic book. You know, what if you're whole path has been charted out for you and you're really just going you know painting by numbers due to this and having an existential 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 crisis that was difficult um cassidy imprisons himself goes into self-imprisonment with an unlocked jail cell and forces himself to wait until his mind is cleared of doubt before he continues which brings us to everyone's favorite event Axis. Axis. Everybody loves Axis, right? 
So in Axis, uh, the main gist of Axis is that the Red Skull steals uh, Charles Xavier, who had recently been killed. He steals his brain, puts it in his brain so he can have mind control powers. Just, that's what happens. And due to the corruption of Charles Xavier's brain being inside of Red Skull's body, this brings about the Red Onslaught. Um... I'm not going to get into this story, really. I'm just going to give you the beats where Carnage was there. So Magneto ends up recruiting Carnage to battle Red Onslaught alongside a team of villains because this isn't just a problem for the heroes. This is a problem for the whole planet. And so they he is present during the inversion spell that is used to try and bring about the mind of Charles Xavier to take over the body instead of... Um, instead of Red Skull. However, the inversion works a little too well because it inverts all of the heroes and villains present, essentially turning them from bad to good and vice versa, which means that Cletus Cassidy now wants to be a hero. Due to this, Cassidy returns to New York and befriends reporter Alice Gleason in hopes that she will teach him how to be a good hero because all he's known is killing people. All he's known is being a serial killer. So he wants to help people without letting his serial killer instincts uh, take over and force him to kill criminals. So he befriends this woman, and there's a little bit of will-they-won't-they they throughout. However, everything comes to a head when Alice is kidnapped by a reborn Sin Eater who has plenty of sins to feed on when he comes up against Carnage. However... Carnage overloads Sin Eater by admitting that the thing that he is most guilty about, his biggest sin, is that he enjoyed everything that he had done. He enjoyed all of the pain he had inflicted. He had enjoyed all of the death and destruction he had caused, which completely just absolutely immobilized and defeated the Sin Eater. However... Following this moment where he is almost like, okay, I've come face to face with my past, I can now move forward, I am a new man, I am born again, he is immediately shot in the head by Alice. When he reconstitutes, turns around and asks her what she's doing, Alice reveals that she's been using Carnage to further her journalistic career she's been sending some of their most intimate conversations to her editor to publish and she is ultimately self-serving carnage escapes from her as well as the ensuing police who do not believe that he is a hero any that he is a hero though in some way, again, in Carnage's insane mind, he takes this as the moment for him to reaffirm himself. I will be a hero no matter what. And so he continues on being a hero and unites with the other inverted villains to form the Astonishing Avengers. At this point, the current Avengers team had been turned into villains, and so a new Avengers team was needed. This Avengers team included Doctor Doom, Absorbing Man, Enchantress, Hobgoblin, Jack-O-Lantern, Magneto, Mystique, Steve Rogers, Sabretooth, Thor, and Zenpool. And this team was... Um, it was fine. You know, we had uh, Thor and Steve Rogers as kind of the guiding lights here, and then all the villains just trying to not do villainous things. But uh, their magnum opus, the lasting um, 
impression that they have on the Marvel Universe was them recording a message taking the blame for the actions of the inverted heroes because they understood that at a certain point, the inversion will be reverted or in the inversion will be inverted. Anyway, um, and they understood that there was a ticking clock. And so they did the most heroic thing that they could, taking the blame for all of the villainous actions of the heroes. And after a battle with the inverted X-Men, who were trying to detonate a gene bomb that would kill everyone on Earth except for mutants, Carnage sacrificed himself, wrapping the symbiote around the bomb and containing the explosion, though seemingly dying in the process. Following this, a re-inversion counterspell was made that cured every one of their inversion, though certain characters like Sabretooth and uh, Tony Stark remained inverted. Uh, Carnage seemingly survived the explosion somehow, and he was able to uh, be cured of his inversion, so he's a villain again, and following this, decided to travel to Carefree, Arizona to reunite with a friend that he had made during his inversion, one Sam Alexander, a.k.a. Nova. Carnage revealed, or Cletus Cassidy at least, revealed that he wanted to kill Sam Alexander so that he could rid himself of the memories of being inverted and being a good person. And so this caused a conflict between Carnage, the symbiote, and Cletus Cassidy, the man, which allowed Nova to defeat Carnage and imprison him back at Rikers. But of course, we know how this game goes. Carnage escapes from Rikers and is lured to Gray Ridge Mine in West Virginia due to a FBI agent who was the lone survivor of his initial killing spree back when he began his killing career, wanting to use his considerable FBI resources to hunt this creature down and kill it. Unfortunately, that's not how it went. Um... Nothing is that easy, so the FBI was systematically slaughtered in their pursuit of carnage in the mines, and so they enlisted the help of John Jameson, however many, a.k.a. Manwolf, as well as bringing back in Eddie Brock. Now, Eddie Brock, at this point, was still not Venom, that role having been passed to Flash Thompson at the time. However, Eddie Brock did arrive with a familiar face. Eddie Brock was now the sole owner of the Toxin symbiote and was using that symbiote to more or less atone for the crimes of his past. And that squared up with trying to hunt down and kill Cletus Cassidy in this mine. However, as they cornered Cletus at near the end, near the, uh, absolute bottom of the mind, it was revealed that the owner of the Grey Ridge Mine was actually a member of an occult group called the Dark Holders. Now, the Dark Holders captured Carnage in an attempt to sacrifice him in a ritual involving the Dark Hold, which everyone knows about now thanks to WandaVision. Um, and so during this, uh, during this, it was revealed that Carnage, uh, at least through the eyes of the Darkholders was designated as the Red Slayer, and this ritual would allow them to 
bring about the uh, the coming of Cthon, who is the uh, god of chaos. And if you want more information on this guy, go back in our Geek Explained episode about uh, Wanda and Vision's uh, romance. Talked about Cthon there. Probably pronounced it differently. Who knows? Um, but yeah, if you want more information about that, feel free to jump in there. However... The ritual didn't bring about the coming of Cthon. It actually enhanced Carnage and his symbiote abilities. Uh, Carnage proceeded to murder the uh, Darkholders that were present and escaped with the Darkhold itself, with the heroes in hot pursuit. Carnage brought the book to a clearing where he attempted to summon Cthon. Uh, Cthon did show up, saw Carnage as this peasant, this pissant thing that he could or that it could destroy and would be essentially the gateway into this world. However, several symbiotes actually bonded together. We're talking the remainders of Toxin. We're talking the remainders of Scorn. We're talking everything. Bonded together to banish Cthon back into whatever hell that the god came from. Following this, Carnage was defeated once again and separated from Cassidy Again, however, this was markedly different from the other half dozen times that the two had been imprisoned and separated because instead of being just kept in a very unnecessarily nearby containment uh, uh, containment cell too close to Cassidy for him to not be able to rebond with, the symbiote was actually sent to a benefactor. That benefactor being Norman Osborn. Osborn used the symbiote to become the Red Goblin and turned um, his grandson into the Goblin Child. That's child with an E. C-H-I-L-D-E because it's spooky. Uh, the Red Goblin proceeded to torment Spider-Man's life in the magnum opus of the Dan Slot Spider-Man run. Uh, during this as well, we got what seemingly was the conclusion of the Carnage Agent Venom story, which saw Flash Thompson, who at this point was Agent Anti-Venom, felled at the hands of Red Goblin. Red Goblin kills Flash Thompson in this story. And I still remember reading this and being absolutely heartbroken. Um, Flash Thompson rules. But uh, eventually, at the moment of his victory, Osborne, because of his psychosis, abandons the symbiote because he believes that if he kills Spider-Man as the Red Goblin, the kill will be awarded to Carnage and not Norman Osborne. So he abandons the the symbiote for credit of killing Spider-Man. However, Spider-Man is able to turn the tide and defeat Osborn. However, during his time bonded to the Carnage symbiote, Norman Osborn, unbeknownst to him, was bonded with a little bit more than just the symbiote itself. The symbiote installed a, essentially like a copy of Cletus Cassidy's psyche into Osborne, basically giving him split personality. So he now has both Cletus's and Norman's mind inside of one body, which is a terrifying idea. I don't like it. It gives me nightmares. However, 
this was not the end of the story, though we are heading into the home stretch here. So, following the uh, following the events of an invasion by the poison hive of Earth one seven nine five two, Cletus Cassidy was killed once again, but this time for realsies, and his body was recovered by another occult group calling themselves the Cult of Null. Now, Null is a character who was introduced in the Donny Cates and Ryan Stegman Venom run and is basically the god of the symbiotes. Also, at a certain point, it was revealed that he's the god of darkness. He's the creator of the Necrosword, uh, creator of the first symbiote, creator of all the symbiotes, and he wants back in the game. Now, this cult of Null believes that the body of Cletus Cassidy is a prime candidate to bring back Null and to bring about the coming of the king in black. So this cult bonds the corpse of Cletus Cassidy to a piece of the Grendel symbiote, which was this symbiote dragon, the first symbiote that touched down on Earth. Again, we th- there's a lot going on here. But the goal for this was to make Cassidy a, the new vessel of Null, because Null was imprisoned millions of light years away inside the planet Clintar, and so he was to be the new avatar for Null. However, during this process, Cassidy reanimates again. Uh, he's not alive, but he does reanimate, and he breaks the control of Null, slaughters all the members of the cult of Null, however decides to bring about the return of Null because chaos... And he's an agent of chaos. So Cassidy recruits Shriek and a revived doppelganger and sets out on a journey retracing his steps. Going all throughout the country, he he goes back to Doverton, he goes back to the mine, he goes back everywhere he's been and begins consuming the codices of all former hosts of symbiotes. Specifically his to start, but then he branches out to other uh, symbiote wielders, anyone who would ever worn a symbiote for any length of time, whether um, whether it was forced on them or whether they welcomed it, contained a piece of the codis for the symbiotes, which was essentially a piece of this hive network, um, yada, yada, yada. But Carnage continued to consume all of these codices until his trail brought him back to New York City. Now empowered and redubbed the Dark Carnage, Cassidy went after his biggest prize, Eddie Brock, who at this point was dealing with separation anxiety from the Venom symbiote. However, during this initial clash, the Venom symbiote returns to Eddie and Carnage battles, or Dark Carnage, rather, battles against Venom and Spider-Man. He eventually, during their uh, fight across New York, encounters Norman Cassidy, Norman who now has a piece of Cassidy's uh, mind inside of him, and decides, this is hilarious, let me bond some of my symbiote to you, creating another Carnage. Uh, this time using the body of Norman Osborn. And then finally, during the uh, climax of this event, uh, he absorbs the original Venom symbiote and becomes even more powerful and is redubbed the Devil Carnage. However, Eddie is able to use 
the remaining merged codices to create a duplicate of his original Venom symbiote, and Eddie uses this Venom duplicate to battle against the Devil Carnage. This fight leads all the way to uh, Dylan, who is Eddie's son and carrier of the final and most important codice, and he gives Eddie an ultimatum, Carnage does. He says... Either way, I win, because either I kill Dylan or you kill me. Either way, Null wakes up. So Eddie decides, well, if we're fucked, we're fucked. So he decides to create a Necrosword, the first instance, the first kind of hint that Symbiotes and the Necrosword are one and the same. And he runs the Necrosword through Carnage and claims all of the symbiotes and symbiote codices that Carnage held, including his original Venom symbiote. The bones of Cletus Cassidy fall to the ground, and there he is dead at last. Or at least he would be if Cletus Cassidy obeyed the laws of physics. Cletus Cassidy just can't be killed. So he continues on, right? His consciousness, even though his body is dust, his body is nothing, his consciousness lives on in the symbiote hive mind. And even though he is mostly a background player during the King and Black arc at the end of it he decides to bond a remaining piece of the carnage grendel symbiote that he used in the um in the absolute carnage event to bond to a shark to escape the uh the end of the king in black story and he is basically just kind of hanging out in the in the Caribbean, he comes upon a uh, boat of Somali pirates, takes them over. However, Eddie, who is now at the end of the last event, the new King in Black, tracks down the Carnage symbiote, forcibly removes him from the Somali pirates, throws the symbiote into the ocean where it bonds to a fish, and that fish is subsequently ripped apart by a horde of symbiote-controlled sharks which you would believe would be the end. However, Cassidy lives on. But I'm not going to spoil for you how exactly he does. For that, you'll need to dive into the latest volume of Carnage Ridiculousness, that being Extreme Carnage, which is going on right now. You are now all the way caught up from his inception all the way to right now as I am recording this, the current times of Cletus Cassidy. And that brings us to the recommended reading. So these are books that I think you should check out if you're interested, if you want to get more info. I gave you more or less the bullet points of his history, and it doesn't exactly do justice to some of these stories. So I'm going to give you a few books that you should check out. First off, of course, the one I just talked about, Extreme Carnage. That's what's going on right now. If you want to know what's going on with Carnage, how he survived the previous uh, encounter, and what is... uh, what his old buddy Flash Thompson might be up to, because surprise, Flash Thompson's back as well, King in Black, just feeding us well, feeding us Flash Thompson fans well. But the Extreme Carnage event is essentially the rematch, and is supposedly the conclusion, supposedly the ultimate climactic battle between Flash Thompson and Cletus Cassidy. We'll see what happens there. It's written by Philip Kennedy Johnson, art by Manuel Garcia. Check it out. But... If you're looking for uh, 
more further reading for Carnage himself, uh, I'd recommend Carnage Classic by David Michelini and Bar- Mark Bagley. This is pretty much all of his first stories, establishing him, bringing him into the fold, as well as his initial battles with Venom and Spider-Man. Uh, also, of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't recommend Maximum Carnage, written by Tom DeFalco, J.M.D. Matias, Terry Cavanaugh, and David Michelini, with art by Mark Bagley, Ron Lim, Sal Buscema, Tom Lyle, and Alex Saviuk. This is when he pals up with the Carnage family and just runs a rough shot across New York. I'd also recommend Absolute Carnage, written by Donny Cates and Ryan Stegman. This was the most recent Carnage-focused event, where he became a vessel for Null, became the Dark Carnage, and lay the Devil Carnage, and it's terrifying. It's legitimately terrifying at times. Very good stuff. Uh, my two favorites, though, my two favorite Carnage stories are uh, Carnage USA, written by Zeb Wells, with art by Clayton Crane. Uh, this is, of course, when he goes to... Uh, Doverton takes over the town, and also The One That Got Away. Written by Jerry Conway, art by Mike Perkins, this is the uh, mind story. And what's great about this is it's not, you know, big bombastic superhero stuff, but it's these these poor FBI agents trying to hunt down Carnage in this abandoned mine. Uh, It does end up kind of weakening the cool aspect of it by bringing in the Cthon and the dark, you know, occult stuff. But most of the majority of it is really freaking good. So uh, that's it for recommended reading. That's it for Carnage. Hopefully now you know everything you need to as Carnage makes his big screen debut on... uh, on theaters across the globe with Venom Let There Be Carnage, played by Woody Harrelson. And uh, no matter what, no matter what you read, no matter what movie you watch, you now know that if Cletus Cassidy is involved, there's going to be carnage. I missed that music so much. I missed it. Oh, my God. Oh, man. I love it. I love it so much. I love Doom Patrol, guys. So welcome back. It is now time for the weekly review where I review something weekly. And uh, this is a reunion of sorts. We haven't done a weekly review in a minute here. And I am very excited. I knew this was the perfect time. And thanks to all of you who voted on Twitter at Geeksplain. Pod, Zachy explained POD. You elected and you decided that we would be bringing back the weekly review for season three of Doom Patrol. Ah, very excited to talk about this. Uh, the first three episodes dropped last Thursday, and each subsequent episode will be dropping every Thursday on HBO Max, so look for it. And here, I'm going to be lightning rounding all three episodes. <laughs> uh, there will be no uh, weekly for these first three episodes. I'm just going to blaze through them, and then each week from here until the end of the season, I will be detailing my thoughts 
on season three of this incredible series. So let's just go ahead and dive into it. Kick things off with season three, episode one, a.k.a. Possibilities Patrol. This is the season premiere. This really uh, kicked off where we uh where we left off this is essentially i think what the uh remaining episodes in season two were supposed to accomplish and they kind of all squished it into this episode uh really starting things off the bat with dorothy versus the candle maker in this alternate reality dreamscape thing um that resolved itself very quickly um it's no uh there's no uh, real indication on how long they were in this alternate dimension but Dorothy basically says to the candle maker hey we're gonna stay here until you decide to be my friend again and so <laughs> the next time we see her the candle maker's giant form you know rips out of the ground with uh, Dorothy riding atop his head very triumphant very exciting until she stumbles upon the scene below finding the remaining members of the Doom Patrol who have been de-waxed huddled around the dead body of the chief. Niles Calder is dead. What a way to kick off the season. I was not expecting this. Uh, This led to a very sweet moment between Larry and Dorothy, which I really like. Um, If you go back and listen to the weekly reviews for season two, I was very uh, hot and cold on Dorothy, and by the end, I was just not a huge fan. But the treatment of her in this, uh, in these few episodes, I thought was really well done, and it turned me around on the character for sure. Uh, Rita has been given a whole lot this season. I think this is going to be a Rita-focused season for sure, which makes me very happy. But uh, this whole episode was kind of centered around the things going on with her. Uh, in the aftermath of Niles' death, they jump one week later, Rita is given a key by Niles to something. We don't know exactly what it was. It looked like some kind of uh, alarm system, some kind of early warning system, but we really couldn't make out what it was supposed to be for, and neither could Rita. And she was trying to busy herself with the play, the Our Town musical that she was portraying the beekeeper in. And uh, for their fi- one of their final rehearsals, uh, she had a freakout where she jumped into a monologue, which I loved. Uh, I love that in true actor form, the way that she processes her emotions is through monologue. Uh, but she kind of unintentionally outed herself as the blob woman um, to the other members of the cast and was subsequently kicked out of the cast and shunned by her cast mates, which was sad. Um, I liked the monologue. I liked how all that kind of came out. And uh, yeah. So meanwhile, in the underground, we also had a dangling plot thread with Jane versus Miranda. Miranda had taken over the underground and wasn't Miranda, but was Miranda. And we found out, we got the clue that she had been, that maybe she was daddy at the end of last season. And it was kind of revealed, which I thought was really interesting, that uh, she wasn't, in fact, daddy. She was actually the uh, manifestation of the trauma that Kay had suffered that birth all of the different personalities that reside within Jane. And I thought it was really interesting that they decided to make Trauma the actual villain. I thought it was really cool um, the way that that all kind of shaked out, ending in Kay's Rebellion, where she summoned all of the other... 
all the other personalities to help Jane escape the underground with his little biplane against uh, not Miranda. Miranda turning into this giant um, puzzle piece monster in the form of daddy. She flew right through it and was able to stop herself from uh, Miranda slash trauma hanging Jane's body. Um, Very dark, which I expected nothing less. And I actually gasped when she stepped off and was caught by, uh, by Cliff. I thought it was super cool. Really, really well done. And I liked that the way that they ended it, you know, ended that story, ended that conflict was with everybody kind of coming into the middle of the underground and throwing all the puzzle pieces into a pile and them, you know, try to be like, you know, he's going to come back, blah, blah, blah. You know, what are we going to do now? And Jane eats one of the puzzle pieces and they all start like playing around and eating with puzzle pieces because it, without beating you over the head, you know, the message of this and the message of Jane's story in general and Kay's story is that trauma does not have to define you, but it will always be a part of you. And the the way that you will handle that and the way that you are able to come to terms with that will determine how you utilize that going forward in your life. And I thought that was a great message. I thought that it did a really great job in kind of squaring the circle, as it were, to solving this um, this two-season, now three-season-long plot where uh, Kay and Jane were being haunted by the trauma of their past. So really enjoy that. I absolutely love that for Jane, but it does make me wonder where we're going to go next with that character. Meanwhile, uh, Cliff was uh, confronted by Ghost Niles, who is still in the house because his body hasn't been uh, buried. And so he is, his soul is trapped in the house like all of the other sex ghosts that are in there. And so they get to have a little hash out about them and their terrible uh, fatherhood. Uh, And speaking of which, Cliff gets to... Uh, visit Clara after she has her baby and, you know, makes the decision to try and fix what he did to try and be a better grandpa than he was a dad. Uh, Also, Larry decides to leave. The negative spirit wants to take him to where it came from. And so after having this tearful goodbye with Rita, they kind of zoom off into the cosmos, leaving uh, Rita in charge of the Doom Patrol, essentially. Uh, We also had a little bit of Vic and Ronnie. I will be honest with you, it's been a while since I watched season two. So I forgot. I forgot who Ronnie was. I saw her show up in the uh, security uniform. I was like, oh, cool. Who is this new character? Was not a new character. It was Ronnie. But after getting the refresher, I remembered uh, her whole deal from last season. And I like that they are doing kind of a slow burn on her quote unquote redemption and what part that Vic is going to play in there. Uh, we also got a quick glimpse at Danny the ambulance when. Uh, when Dorothy decided to finally bury uh, Niles's body, so they get to ride off with uh, with Dorothy and Niles to go bury him. Uh, at the end of the episode, we saw the uh, culmination of the Our Town um, plot, where they got to put on their show, and then that that whore, that mean girl who played. Uh, 
who played the play version of Rita, falls into a giant pit after encountering one Michelle Gomez, who we know is going to be playing Madame Rouge. And apparently Madame Rouge is a time traveler, so I don't know what's going on. She's hunting Niles Calder for some reason, so it is going to be very interesting to see what happens there. And speaking of Niles Calder, I had to go back because I didn't know that there was a mid-credit sequence, but there is. There's a mid-credit sequence where Kipling digs up Niles' body and takes his head saying this world isn't done with you yet so lots of intrigue in the first episode brings us to episode 2 aka Vacay Patrol and it starts off really fun it brings us to a flashback of the Brotherhood of Evil in 1949 we get to see the brain and Miziramala um, I love that I loved seeing that but this episode was ultimately the Ballad of Garguax or Garguax Garguax the Decimator um, him and his manservant which name whose name escapes me but I know is Billy Boyd uh, Billy Boyd forever but the two of them are tasked with uh, eliminating Rita Farr we don't know why, we don't know how, we don't know what uh, the Brotherhood of Evil's goal is for Rita Farr, but they end up, you know, stationed at this lodge, and they just sit there for decades. Decades pass, um, and by the time that we get here in 2021, they have been there for many, many years, over a half a century, and Garguax is pretty just disillusioned with life there with their mission uh larry is in in the ether he comes face to face with himself and then by the end of his little trip he winds up back at the mansion without the negative spirit perhaps we're not really sure exactly what uh what is going on there but i'm sure we'll get more information later uh we got some grandpa cliff scenes where he's trying to be a good uh good grandpa but his hand keeps shaking and they tease this in the first episode where it's like it's not a mechanical problem it's not anything having to do with his construction it's a brain thing because cliff's actual human brain is still plugged into the robot so whatever's happening it might be a brain issue, and they, you know, tease that it might be Parkinson's because Cliff's family has a history of that. And so um, I thought that was incredibly interesting and something that I would not think to touch on. Um, fascinating, really, really fascinating uh, how they're going to go forward with that. But the big, you know, the big driving force of this was vacation time. We got to see all of the uh, Doom Patrol members at the remaining ones anyway, palling around and just not enjoying their vacation. They go to the lodge that Garguax has been, has made his, uh, his home for the last half century. Uh, Vic is also dealing with the aftermath of him helping out Ronnie in the previous episode because his dad through the systems at star labs shuts him down, basically turns him on to safety mode <laughs> where he can't use any of his tech only the stuff that keeps him alive and going, and it turns his red lights to blue. So he is out of commission for time for the time being, essentially on lockdown, put in timeout, he's grounded, whatever you want to call it. He is useless when it comes to combat. Uh, we get a nice little bonding moment between Cliff and Garguax, which I thought was fun. And the episode kind of turns into Therapy Patrol Part 2, because all of them are dealing with their own stuff. All of them are dealing with their own trauma. All of them are dealing with the aftermath of uh, the Chief's death. And it was a fun, like, 
sequence of all of them kind of centering themselves again. You know, Cliff tries to climb that weird wooden ladder thing. Um, Vic is trying to reach Ronnie through his cell phone. Uh, Jane tries to go through the labyrinth and just gets pissed off with it. And um, Rita tries to make a pot, tries to do some pottery, doesn't go too well. And so all of them come together and they're all like silently sipping Mai Tais in the lounge room. And uh, this was nice. I love moments like this. It's very similar to the opening uh, episode of Umbrella Academy, the moment where they all kind of come together to dance. Uh, it was very similar to that. They used Forever Young this time, which I thought was apropos, considering the Infinity Formula and what Niles had done to them. Uh, but it was fun, and it also was very interesting to me, because this might be the first instance of Kay taking back control. Because we see Kay looking through Jane's eyes through this, like... Um, a viewfinder kind of deal and she hears the music and she starts dancing around which makes Jane dance around so this might be a tease that Kay could be taking control of her body later on down the line which would be fascinating to see happen um so I really enjoyed that meanwhile Garguax is like ah, I'm done with this like they they're no threat the brotherhood's gone so him and Billy Boyd are getting ready to leave and then they're uh, their tech starts beeping. They start getting a return signal, which they haven't gotten since they got to the resort. The Brotherhood might be alive and well. We don't know what the situation with that is, but um, at that exact, you know, they flash back to the uh, to the dancing. The door is open. Garguax steps through and he says, run, and he dies. He's been killed by Billy Boyd, who uses this giant um, laser cannon to seemingly kill Vic, uh, Jane, and Cliff. Rita tries to escape, but she is encountered by someone who hops out of the same kind of time-traveling device that Madame Rouge hopped out of at the end of last episode, except this person takes the goggles off and reveals herself to be Rita? Another Rita time-traveling shenanigans? This is going to be an amazing season. I love shit like this. But this time, traveling Rita shoves Rita back into the room, pulls the, uh, or essentially bars her from exiting, and Rita is ultimately killed by Billy Boyd. So I don't know what's happening by the end of this episode. I was just like shouting at the screen, like, what is going on? But that brings us to episode three and my favorite episode so far out of this season Dead Patrol. Uh, this episode picks up at the River Styx with these, like, anglerfish Grim Reaper things, and I thought it was really interesting how initially it kind of seemed like they were going to be bringing uh, Jane, Rita, Cliff, and, um, and Vic into kind of their own personal hells, similar to what the Candlemaker did in the season finale last season, but... It, it actually kind of grew into them getting closure, which I thought was really cool. Uh, Larry and Dorothy, again, got to have a nice moment where Larry comes back to the mansion, finds everyone's, you know, everyone gets their bodies mailed to him and they're all dead, so he, like, wraps them up. Dorothy comes back from burying Niles and they're all trying to, like, figure out what's going on. And they get a reference from Danny to go and 
recruit the talents of the Dead Boys Detective Agency. This is such a deep cut that I could see it all the way down to the bone. Um, This was awesome. Getting the Dead Boy Detectives into this is incredible, and it made me want to see a spinoff with just them. I could easily see a great one or two season show with the Dead Boy Detectives. Charles and Edwin and their psychic living companion, Crystal Palace, um, are recruited to help them, to help Larry and Dorothy retrieve the souls of the rest of the Doom Patrol, because they're not dead, they're not in hell, they're not in heaven, they're in the in-between processing area before they're sent off to the afterlife. So Charles and Edwin rule. I love the relationship between the two of them, the uh, will-they-won't-they kind of situation with them as well. We also got teases of their uh, of their former lives, how they died, etc., etc. I thought it was really cool. In the afterlife, Charles and Edwin lead Larry to help liberate the rest of the team. Uh, closure is had between uh, Vic, Jane, and Cliff. Cliff gets closure with his dad, who was not anywhere near a good dad, but apparently became a very good grandpa after Cliff died. Uh, Jane gets closure with her grandma, who it is revealed to have also been named Jane, and the reason that Kay came up with the name for Jane was because of her abuelita. So I thought that was very cool, very touching. And then Vic got to have closure with his mom. All conversations that were heartfelt, that mattered, and that really helped push these characters forward. Um, Rita also got to meet someone apparently from her past. In the uh, subtitles, he's listed as Monster Man, and in the credits, we don't know who he is. I'm assuming with all the time travel shenanigans, we are going to get more info on him later, so stay tuned on that. But eventually, Charles, Edwin, and Larry reunite with the dead members of the patrol just in time to encounter this Madam Underling of Death, who they are able to successfully escape thanks to the sacrifice of the Monster Man. Meanwhile, Dorothy and Crystal get to have a nice one-on-one and you know Dorothy talks about having lost her mom and dad Crystal you know it's implied to have also lost her mom and dad and so by the end of the episode after you know everyone's revived everything's copacetic Dorothy decides to leave with the dead boy detective agency to figure out what's next for her which I thought was cool and again opens the door for a spinoff um So they all leave, everything is back to normal, quote-unquote, but then, coming down the steps is Michelle Gomez, Madame Rouge herself, who makes herself a pot of tea, and immediately everyone's like, who are you? She says, that's a great question. Who wants some tea? And then it just goes to credits. So next episode, I'm assuming we're going to be getting more uh, info on Madame Rouge, what she's doing there, the time travel shenanigans. Or not. Who knows? This season has already been unlike anything I expected it to be. But obviously, I loved it. Do Patrol is back, and I'm already feeling so good about this season. I talked about how I didn't love season two. Um, It was still great, but there were definitely shortcomings for me. But it seems like, at least from the start here, season three is going to be 
just as if not better than season two which i'm very very excited about so uh that is going to do it for the weekly review tune in next week for episode four of doom patrol but for now let's roll us right on into this week's comics countdown Welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I talk about the comics that I think you should be picking up this week, whether it's at your local comic book shop, a comicsology, or however you get your comics. These are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. But before we get into this week's books, we're going to take a look back at last week's books with the Geek Explained Pick of the Week of last week. And for me, it was tough, but ultimately, once I read this comic, it there was it was no contest. I picked Supergirl Woman of Tomorrow number four written by Tom King with art by Bill Kiss Evely. I loved this book. I loved this issue. I got emotional reading this. I got all types of things and say what you will about Tom King, whether you think he's a hack, whether you think he's, you know, the next, you know, the second coming of comic book writing. I am a huge fan of his and the one thing that I think everybody can agree on is his writing always makes you feel something which I absolutely adore this comic I felt all of the feels I'm just blasting through peeking my mic here but I genuinely loved this book and if you are not reading Supergirl Woman of Tomorrow do yourself a favor go pick up these previous four issues you will not be disappointed I promise you but that's last week's books. Taking a look back at this week's books, we've got 10 books for you to check out. So let's go ahead and dive into the list here, kicking things off with a final issue, that being Batman Superman number 22, written by Gene Luniang with art by Paul Pelletier. I am sad to see this go. I have been loving this book from the outset. Um... It's sad. It is very sad that this is where it ends for the Gene Lun Yang Batman Superman era, but um, I can I can confidently say that this is one of the best runs of the book, and I will at least be able to know that. So uh, let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Mr. Mix Pedelic, resurrecting Calendar Man from his death during A-Day, is causing some reality-rattling consequences. If Superman and Batman are going to prevent a fifth-dimensional god-being from compartmentalizing all of existence, they're going to need to turn to some unlikely allies. So this is the final issue. Um, it's a great little one-off finale. Uh, combining Mr. Mitzpinelik with Calendar Man is not something I would ever think to do. But again, Jean Lun Yang is a hell of a writer. So I'm excited to pick this up. Sorry to see the series go, but... It's been a good run. Next up, we have Action Comics number 1035. This is written by Philip Kennedy Johnson and Sean Lewis with art by Daniel Sampier and Sammy Basri. And this is the big uh, this is the big issue. This is where we see what's going to be happening for Clark going forward. The cover is gorgeous. It's, you know, has the goodbye emblazoned upon it. So this is going to be a big deal. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. 
War World Rising Part 6 slash Tales of Metropolis The Guardian. Superman keeps the abandoned War World weapon out of the hands of anyone who might misuse it, but now the Justice League questions his judgment. It's time for Clark Kent to put up or shut up. In Tales of Metropolis, The Guardian comes to the city. Is this another step towards future state? So it seems like all of the pieces are falling into place for these future state stories. I still think that we are going to be seeing a sharp left turn and we're going to be going away from the reality of future state. There's going to be an offshoot of it, but... Either way, very interested to see what they do here. Next up, we have Detective Comics number 1043. This is written by Mariko Tamaki and Matthew Rosenberg, with art by Dan Mora and Derek Robertson. And, I mean, Detective Comics is incredible. And now we're in the midst of Fear State. So we're going to be seeing a lot of the fallout uh, due to the events going on in the mainline Batman book and in the Fear State event as a whole. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Nakano's Nightmare Part 1 slash What the Hell is Task Force Z Finale Fear State grips Gotham City. When Mayor Nakano's City Hall office finds itself under siege, the only hero who can help the embattled local official is the man Nakano pledged to rid from Gotham, Batman. This top vigilante in the city must protect the man who's fought so hard to put an end to masked heroes in an action-packed car chase that culminates in a shocking ending that'll leave readers with nightmares. Plus, wait, how did Red Hood end up in Deb Donovan's apartment, and what the hell gives him the right to eat all her frosted cereal? As Gotham's troubled son and the city's toughest reporter set out to uncover the mystery of the missing A-Day corpses, they run into more answers than they bargained for, culminating in a deadly shootout that renders Red Hood down for the count. Can Deb Donovan make it out alive to tell the tale of her harrowing adventure? And what will Red Hood's capture mean for the Bat family? It all leads to next month's terrifying new chapter in Gotham history, Task Force Z. So yeah, that's a lot that's going on there, so I'm excited to pick this up for sure. Next up, we have Superman number 78, or Superman 78 number 2, excuse me. Uh, This is written by Robert Vendini with art by Wilfredo Torres, and I really enjoyed the first issue. I mean... It's it's Chris Reeve Superman. What do you want from me? You know I'm going to love it. I'm an easy mark for that stuff. But I'm excited to dive back into this world and learn more about what could have happened following, you know, the events of the films. And I've been enjoying it. I'm getting a lot I'm getting fed real well for my Superman content this this week. So, I'm excited about let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. After a battle with a rampaging robot, Superman enlists an unlikely ally to crack the code behind who sent it. He needs an intelligent technological genius, and that can mean only one person, Lex Luthor. So yeah, tells y'all you need to know we're getting our Gene Hackman Lex Luthor back, so this should be fun. Next up, we have Robin, number six. This is written by Joshua Williamson with art by Gleb Melnikov. And again, I've been loving the Robin book so far. Having this shonen tournament style storytelling is fantastic. Um, I still kind of wish it was Cascade, but um, I've been enjoying it and I'm excited to see what they do with this book now that the tournament has officially started. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis 
here. Fight, 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 fight. Ding, ding, ding. Let the tournament begin. The most ruthless fighters in the DCU compete for the ultimate prize, eternal life. To win his first round, Damian Wayne faces two times the danger and two times the trouble. It's Ravager and Flatline versus Robin. So they're getting it right out the gate, rematch between Robin and Flatline. Um, and then we're going to have Ravager in the mix too. So very excited to see how this shakes out. Next up, we have Thor number 17. This is written by Donny Cates with art by Michelle Bandini. And I've been loving this book. I've also been loving Thor. It's been fantastic. They're starting a whole new uh a whole new uh, arc after this. This is the conclusion of the two-part, two or three-part revelations where we're going to be learning something pretty exciting. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Revelations conclusion. The epic finale of Revelations. Thor, ruler of Asgard, can now focus on just that. Ruling. But with power comes truth, and Thor will learn that being king isn't so simple. When havoc on Midgard begins, Mjolnir seems to have vanished under the Avengers' watch. And Thor must learn more than one truth this day. The shocking conclusion of revelations that no one will see coming is here. So yeah, that's uh, that's teasing something pretty big. So we'll see exactly what Kate's has in store for Thor. Next up, we have Superman, Son of Kal-El, number three. This is four. This is four Superman-involved stories, and I love it. I'm getting real, real good Superman content this week. This is, of course, written by Tom Taylor with art by John Timms. And this book has been great so far. I've been really enjoying Son of Kal-El. And I can't wait to see what else they've got cooked up for Jonathan Kent. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. The Truth, Part 2. Jonathan Kent hasn't been Superman for long, but he's upset some powerful people with his heroism. And the underground news source known as The Truth is helping John open his eyes to the evils in the world that could be more powerful than the new Man of Steel. Continuing the brand new saga of Superman from Tom Taylor, the writer of Nightwing, and John Timms, artist on Future State Superman of Metropolis. So yeah, um, I love that they are diving into stuff that maybe Clark wouldn't be able to really involve himself with. I guess that is a benefit for having a younger Superman. Looking forward to this one for sure. Next up, we have The Good Asian number 5. Finally! Finally, I've been waiting for this issue. Uh, written, of course, by uh, Pornsock Pachetschot with art with Al- with art by Alexandra Tefenki and Lee Luffridge. So I'm not sure what we're going to be involving a second artist in this for, but I am definitely interested to see what it is. I've been loving Good Asian. If you have not been reading The Good Asian, you need to do yourself a favor and read it. It is amazing. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Suffering a traumatic loss... Edison Hawk relives the pivotal and contentious moments that led a Chinese-American to become a cop in 1930s America, as the secret origin of Edison Hawk is revealed. So we're finally getting some origin story. I love it. There's been a lot that has been... Um, 
inferred and insinuated about Edison in this book so far. So getting some concrete answers about where he comes from, the choices he made, and what's going on with him is going to be really, really cool. But the two big books of the week, the books I think you should absolutely be picking up, are, first off, Strange Adventures number 12, written by Tom King with art by Mitch Jarrods and Doc Shaner. Uh, this book has been incredible. You know, I talked about the Super Supergirl Woman of Tomorrow book. This book has been just as amazing. Uh, and here we are at the conclusion. We're going to see exactly what is going to happen here. Uh, everything's coming to a head. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Chapter 12. Mr. Terrific hasn't just dug into the past. He's jackhammered it to pieces, exposing Adam Strange's deepest, darkest secrets. If Adam did commit war crimes, he needs to be punished. But how do you pull a hero off the field of battle when he's staving off an alien invasion that supposedly only he can stop? Is the truth worth it? And what if Terrific is wrong? The only one who may know for sure, Alana Strange. Find out in this final issue of one of the year's most exciting comic book miniseries. So yeah, this is, there's a lot of plates spinning, there's a lot that could happen here, and I cannot wait to see how it all wraps up. And the other big book of the week, the book I think you should absolutely be picking up, is... Inferno number one. This is written by Jonathan Hickman with art by Valerio Schitti. And this is this is it. This is the big conclusion for Jonathan Hickman's time on X-Men. Uh, this is going to take us into the next era. We don't know what's going to happen after this because this is going to be uh, going concurrently with Trial of Magneto. But Moira is stepping out of the shadows and stepping into the light. And that light might just be from a raging fire that Mystique has set. So there's a lot that could be happening here. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. The culmination of Jonathan Hickman's X-Men begins. There will be an island, not the first, but the last. Promises were made and broken. The rulers of Krakoa have been playing a dangerous game with a dangerous woman, and they are about to see how badly that can burn them. Mastermind powerhouse writer Jonathan Hickman brings his plans to a head, joined by an incredible lineup of artists, beginning with Valerio Schiti, as one woman follows through on her promise to burn the nation of Krakoa to the ground. So a lot has been said about Inferno, a lot has been said in the lead-up to Inferno, and now we're here. We're going to see just what happens at the conclusion of Jonathan Hickman's run with the X title. So I am very excited, cannot wait, and I'm nervous for every mutant on Krakoa. But that is going to do it for this week's Comics Countdown. To recap, we have Batman Superman number 22, Action Comics number 1035, Detective Comics number 1043, Superman number... Superman, I keep doing that. Superman 78, number two. Robin, number six. Thor, number 17. Superman, Son of Kal-El, number three. The Good Asian, number five. Strange Adventures, number 12. And Inferno, number one.
And that is going to bring us to the wrap-up. If this is your first time joining us on the Geeksplain podcast and you like what I do here, feel free to subscribe on the podcasting platform of your choice and give us a rating and review. We drop new episodes every single Wednesday, and honestly, ratings, reviews, and especially subscriptions really do help me out, really helps the podcast out in this weird podcasting algorithm space, kind of raises our stock up and gets us out and into the orbit of listeners just like you. And if you leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, whatever you want to call it, I will read your review here on the podcast. You can join the likes of our almost dirty dozen, including Seafire ND, Josh from Panels to Pixels, Matt Draper, Burrito Man 88, Doug from For Every Kind of Geek, Don Swanson, That Guy Brian, Mouth Dork, Dallas Meeks, Amazing Spider Fan, and A-Lock and A-Z. I want to say a big thank you to these fine folks for all of their amazing reviews, and I cannot wait to hear yours. Also, if you want to be part of our Geek Explained mailbag, you can email me. If you have a question for me, you want clarification on something, maybe some recommendations on comics we haven't covered for the podcast yet, or if you want a quick pitch, or if you just want to ask me some questions about me, voice acting comics, anything, feel free to email me. Send your emails to geeksplained at gmail.com. Just put mailbag in the subject header, and I will read them here on the podcast. Just like our good brother and friend of the podcast, Brian Real, the real deal himself, wrote in this week. Always good to hear from Brian, and Brian writes... Hi, Eric. Hello. Hope you're doing great. I really enjoyed At Home Comic Con this year and was glad you participated. It was all so fun, and I'm glad for all the great panels everyone put together. Yes, I had a ton of fun. I was part of the uh, superhero RPG panel with creators like uh, Scott Nicewander from NerdSync, Laron Reedus, and Tulak the Barbarian, and was also joined by comic writer Jim Zub. Super fun time. Uh, if you haven't yet, Check out either the NerdSync or at Home Comic Con uh, YouTube pages, or if you want to listen to an audio version of the panel, I released it as a Geek Explain Extra. Just check back in the feed. But yeah, had a great time. It was for a great cause, Project Project Hope. Amazing, amazing uh, charity. They're great. I had a great time. Ton of fun. But anyway. Brian writes, I wanted to ask if you have seen Star Wars Visions yet. If you have, can we get a ranking of the episodes from you along with why your favorite was your favorite? My personal favorite was The Elder for many reasons. If you haven't gotten the chance to watch yet, are there any you're especially excited to watch? The whole series got me pretty excited to maybe start watching some different anime. Any suggestions for me if I enjoyed Star Wars Visions as much as I did? I'm quite the noob when it comes to anime if I'm being honest. Also, what would you like to see them do in the future should they make another season of visions as always take care and be well you rock best brian thank you again brian always good to hear from you brother uh i have not watched star wars visions yet i have a backlog of things i have to watch and it is definitely on the list i've heard nothing but good things and as an avid anime lover i am very excited to dive into it um but i've heard very good things about the elder i've also heard really good things about i think it's called I think it's the sixth or like the ninth Jedi or something like that. Um, so I'm looking forward to those two. I can't wait. I've only heard good things and the uh, little bits and pieces I've seen have been incredible. So I can't wait to dive into that. If you were a fan of anime, we actually did uh, last year in 2020. 
We did a whole month. Uh, what was X-May this year was actually anime last year, where we dedicated an entire month to the genre of anime. I had some of my best brothers on the podcast to talk about uh, different anime, its impact, great places to start watching anime, as well as going through each of our uh, favorite anime and kind of a round table at the end of the month. Uh, if you want more information, go check that out in the feed. It's one of my favorite little events that we've done on the podcast. Um, but off the top of my head, uh, if you liked uh, Star Wars Visions, some stuff that you might enjoy, uh, Cowboy Bebop, Outlaw Star, uh, I might get flack for saying this, but stuff like Tenchi Muyo and Yu Yu Hakusho. Yu Yu Hakusho is my favorite anime of all time. Um, but that should give you a nice little uh, grouping, a nice little quartet of stuff to check out, especially if you're a fan of space, sci-fi, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, also, I mean... If you're looking for more like samurai-esque stuff, Samurai Shampoo is always a fan favorite. So definitely check that out. Um, and like I said, if you want more information on my fandom when it comes to anime, as well as uh, some interviews and talking about anime's impact on me and some of my friends, go back, check out the anime event. Uh, that's A-N-I-M-A-Y, you know, because I'm, I'm cheeky. Uh, that we did last year. I had a ton of fun, and you can check that out there. But again, thank you so much, Brian. I am looking forward to checking out Visions, and I'm glad that you enjoyed it. Finally, if you want to keep up to date with the podcast, if you want to participate in polls that decide future episodes of the podcast, a Twitter poll decided that we were bringing back the weekly review for Doom Patrol Season 3. So your choices do matter. This is a podcast for geeks by a geek. So uh, if you want to have a hand in deciding future episodes, uh, if you want to keep up to date with the podcast, or if you just want to shoot the shit with me about the latest geeky news, feel free to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at GeeksplainedPod. That's at GeeksplainedPod. I'm much more active on Twitter than I am on Instagram, though I am trying to change that. But yeah, if you want to follow us that is the place to do it and that is going to wrap up this week's episode and that's going to wrap up the month of september i feel like this month blew by i feel like just yesterday it was september 1st and now we are here it is now october which means dear listener it's time for geektober lightning sounds lightning sounds uh we are doing geektober the return this year last year i had a ton of fun putting geektober together and this year i'm gonna have just as much fun we're doing four episodes four weeks dedicated to the month of october and the spooky season so look out next week for the first installment of geektober 2021 same geek time same geek channel but for now for geek explain this is eric azana thank you very much for listening stay safe and we will See you next time.